much as we may try to to come up with our own significance and to strive after uh, different aspects of performance or achievement or ownership or all these things, it doesn't work. It doesn't add up to life. Life is only found in relationship, relationship with God and then also in healthy relationship with others too. And so we're thinking about that, being made in the image of a relational God. And so that was the morning, and next week we'll do another question, and then there'll be one after that. In the evenings, we're kind of following along somewhat parallel, but we're using the book of Ephesians, just the first uh, section of this letter. And uh, one of the reasons for that is because I think if we're going to talk about getting back to basics, Ephesians is a great place to go. Now, some people would say, are you serious? Ephesians, that's like, whoa, that's rich stuff. That's not easy going. But actually, it is basic in this sense that when Paul wrote the letter, he's sitting in a prison in Rome, and he's communicating with the church at Ephesus and the other churches in the region, and he's concerned for them. They've only been churches for just a few years. He's concerned for them because not too far away, heresy is creeping in, and and that's what he addresses in the letter to the Colossians. And so he writes this letter to the Ephesians that could be dropped off on the way and it could be passed around the churches. And it really is a foundational, uh, in a sense, a beginner's guide to Christianity. Now, that doesn't mean that it's simplistic. It doesn't mean that it's automatically easy to grasp everything. But I think from Paul's perspective, the letter to the Ephesians really was, okay, you want a beginner's course? Here it is. Let's make sure we've got the basics in place. And so last week, we looked at the start of the the book, the letter, the first chapter, where he, he said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he keeps going. Now, that would have been plenty. He could have just said that. But Paul was on a roll. And he kept going for 202 words in his language to just spill out this delight in God. And interestingly enough, in the process, what does he give us? He gives us a... A real insight into the Trinity, into this God who, who the, it's really about the Father. The Father in his grace, he lavished his grace on us. And he lavished his grace on us by choosing us to be in his family as part of the bride of Christ, as, as being adopted as uh, uh, his sons. And, and he chose us and he sent his son, he gave Jesus to redeem us by his blood. And, and he chose us and he gave the spirit to seal us. So that we can know that we're his. So that it can be definite and certain. And so you've got the father choosing. And you've got the son redeeming or buying back. By going to the cross and dying in our place. And you've got the spirit saying this one is mine. And and just giving us that assurance. And setting us apart as sold. Purchased by Christ. And so it really is an astonishing start. It's a a bit of a fireworks display, really, for a beginner's guide to Christianity, a 202-word sentence. That's no mean feat, but Paul just keeps going. Next thing, he's going to pray a prayer. And as he prays a prayer, he's, he's kind of reining it in a bit. It's just 157 words long this time. But you imagine Paul just going and going and going, and, and the man who's writing it for him as he's dictating it, probably getting cramp. You know, remember exams when you get cramp in your hand? Maybe not. I used to get cramp in my hand, and it was quite painful. I imagine that Tychicus is writing away, going, when's he going to finish? When's he going to take a breath? And Paul just praying and praying. And what does he pray? In 157 words, basically, he prays one thing. 
What would you pray if you were him sitting in prison for a group of churches that you care about? A group of churches that are young, new to the faith, people that have come out of of the world with all of the the confusion of of Artemis worship and idol worship and and all the, the, the sin issues and all the complexities of life in that part of the world in those days, modern day Turkey and it used to be called Asia Minor back then, but, but all the issues and all the baggage. And, and if you've ever been around a church, any church, you know there's going to be issues, right? It's not going to be easy. There's, well, there's people. And when people come together, it gets awkward. And so there's all the things he could be praying about, praying for them and, and their relationships with each other and their relationships with the, you know, the leadership and, the, and all the complexities of maybe the, it's a bit early for building projects, but you know what I mean, all the, the, the realities of meeting and, and making sure that they care for one another and the make, make sure that they have appropriate relationships with the community around and don't you know, upset the authorities, but at the same time be bold, but be wise and, and all the complexities of church life. And Paul could have prayed through all those things because he knew what church life was like. And what does he pray? He prays one thing, essentially. Let's look and see what it is. Verse 15, he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He's thankful for them. Isn't it, isn't it a delight when you know somebody that has, has come to know Jesus as their Savior? And, and the transformation has occurred and, and you watch it and, and it, I, I don't think new Christians realize just what a blessing and an encouragement that is for older Christians. You know, just to, to see them growing and thriving and loving Jesus and loving each other and trusting Jesus. I mean, the whole thing is beautiful. And Paul just said, I'm so thankful for you. I'm sitting here. I can't do anything, but I'm thankful for you. And then he prays. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that, and here's the request, so that you may know him better. That's a simple prayer, isn't it? My prayer is that you, Ephesians and, and all the others in the churches around, my prayer is that you will know God better. I wonder when was the last time we prayed something that simple and yet that profoundly relevant. I know it's so easy, isn't it, to, to always pray for needs and, and issues, and that's completely appropriate. It's appropriate to come to God and be concerned for people that are not well or for people that are struggling and to, to pray for the practicalities of life and this person needs a job and this person's struggling with this. And, and of course we should bring everything to him because if it's on our heart, it's appropriate to tell him because he cares and he wants to hear it. But if we really want to get to a sort of biblical prayer, why don't we start praying if we haven't already, God, I pray that we will know you better. We pray for my friend at church that they will know you better. So simple. And yet really, that's, that's the heart of it, isn't it? If the Christian life is about being in relationship with God, then what could be better than knowing him better? In fact, why don't we just pause right now and ask God just that. Let's pray. Father, we pray for each other. For everyone associated with this church, we pray very simply 
that you would enable us, help us, draw us. We want to know you better. Amen. So simple. Such a life changer. If, if we could just know him better. In fact, he goes on to develop that and to give a bit more detail. But it's just developing, really, that one prayer request. And just notice how he begins the next verse. It's really still the same sentence. But he's, he's carrying on and he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's an interesting image, isn't it? That confuses, you know, cardiologists with optometrists. How do we have eyes on our hearts and what could they possibly see? Well, he's obviously not talking literally, right? But what he's talking about is the, the heart, the center of the human being. And he's saying that from the heart, at the heart level, I want you to be able to see clearly. I want you to be able to know some things. And we'll come back and we'll see what those things are. Three things that he prays that they will know. But before we do that, let's just flick forward to chapter 4. Because just so that we don't get the impression that some of this language is just introduced here and then, you know, then he gets on with things. Let's look forward and let's see that actually he does come back to some of these same ideas in multiple places. And this passage here is absolutely critical. And I I just, I'll try to not say too much, but I do want us to see it. When we're talking about what it is to be a human, how does a human function? This is an absolute ground zero passage. Ephesians 4, verse 17 and following. He's talking to them about how they should be living out their their calling. Now that they are Christ's, what does that look like in practice? And he's urging them to, to live according to who they now are. In contrast to the people around them, the people in society who are just living their own way. And, and so look at what he says here and, and f- try to follow the logic. He says, verse 17... So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Literally, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Don't, don't perform life their way. But he carries on. Why do they perform life the way they do? Why do they live the way they do? He says, in the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Three ways of kind of reinforcing the same thing. They live the way they do because they think the way they think. That's true, isn't it? We live out what we think. If you ponder something long enough, you tend to act on it. it is, you know, the, the thought processes influence the performance, the, the life choices. And if you want to help somebody, surely you've got to help the, uh, the thinking. You can't just enforce. You, know, you, you can pressure. You can do the sergeant major thing or the, the schoolmaster thing. But it, really, the best thing to do has got to be to go deeper. If the issue is coming from deeper, then you don't want to just be on the outside, right? Just, you know piling on the pressure and whipping people into shape. No, you've got to recognize they're doing what they're doing because they're thinking what they're thinking, but that's not the end of his sentence. What does he say after that at the end of the verse? They do what they do because they think what they think due to the hardening of their hearts. There's the root. And and if we think that we're going to be able to, to help people to live better lives based on external pressure... We're naive in the extreme. The Bible here is clearly saying that actually what we do is just a working out of what we think. And so surely we need to be educated. We need to be taught. We need to to have our thinking changed. But actually, it goes deeper than that. 
We think the way we think because of the state of our hearts. And if we're trying to care for people, if we're trying to love people, if we're trying to reach people with the gospel, or if we're trying to parent people in the home, or if we're trying to be a good friend, whatever we're trying to do with each other, we've got to grasp the significance of those verses. Human beings are heart-driven creatures. We're made in the image of a God who's a loving God. And he's made us in his image as lovers, as those who love and respond. And from the heart, we live our lives. Massively important. In fact, what you think about something can change literally in a heartbeat. The moment your heart turns, your thinking completely reprocesses. You ever notice that? The moment your heart is engaged and you want something, suddenly you're explaining to yourself why that's okay, why that's legitimate. It's, 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 not, it's not what I thought it was because now I know. And then we, we think it through and we reprocess in our minds and then we act on it and we justify it and we say, you know, I'm a thoughtful person. I've thought it through and I've got an explanation. But the truth is we wanted it. We do what we want. We think according to our wants. It's a heart reality. That's what a human is. Every marketer knows that. Every salesman knows that. Even scientists know that. But honestly, sometimes Christians seem to be resistant to that. You think of all people, we get it. The Bible's full of this stuff. We're heart creatures. We're responders. And piling the pressure on from the outside doesn't achieve anything unless the heart's in it. And actually, you've got the problem because if people think the right thing to do is to conform to the pressure you're putting on them, they can do the right thing with the heart still in the wrong place. The heart is the center of everything. Solomon, he had some wisdom, had some issues too, but he had some wisdom. And Solomon said, above all else. That's pretty major if you've written over a thousand Proverbs and you're known as the wisest man on the planet to say above all else should get your attention. What does he say next? Above all else, guard your heart. For it is the fountain of life, the wellspring of life. Everything flows from there. Okay, Solomon had some heart issues and they led him astray. Let's go to another teacher. What about Jesus? What did he say? He said, it's not what goes in from the outside that makes you unclean. It's what spews forth from the heart. Mark chapter 7. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. You see, the heart is the the center of the human being. And if we're going to say, what is it to be human? We've got to wrestle with the issue of how does the heart relate to everything else? And the Bible is saying to us nice and clearly, the heart is the root. The heart is the source. The heart is the, the driver. And everything else does what it's told. In fact, Paul goes on, uh, verse 19, to talk about the heart issues a bit. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they've become hardened. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust or passion for more. So he's describing the world and he's saying, you know what? They're just going for it because their heart can't stop. But, and here's the contrast. He says in verse 20, you... However, you Christians, he says, did not come to know Christ that way. Literally, let me tell you what he actually said here. Uh, he, he, he wrote this, you did not learn Christ that way. Now, I think I'm right in saying this, I, I haven't checked, but certainly in the Bible, and I think in the whole of ancient Greek literature, the word learn is never followed by a person. 
You learn a subject. You learn information. You learn data. You learn a skill. You learn a job. You learn something. And Paul says deliberately and uniquely, you did not learn Christ. You see, there's something very relational about that language, that that choice of wording that he uses there. He says, you didn't learn Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former life, way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He's saying this, you've come into a relationship If you're a Christian, you've been brought into a relationship, you've learned Christ, and that's changing you from the inside out. From the inside out, based on that response, your attitude, your thinking is changing, and so be consistent. He says, take off the old self and all the stuff you used to do. Throw that away and put on the new self because it's being created, what's the phrase there? To be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is passionately concerned that they have true righteousness and holiness. But Paul never says you're going to get there by being whipped into shape. You're going to get there in relationship with Christ. As your heart is changed from the hardened heart to a living heart sensitized by a person, then that's going to influence your thinking and you're going to learn and you're going to grow in your understanding and that's going to influence your living. And if somebody truly knows Christ, then you will truly see the fruit. You see, there's the the flow from inside to out. And that's a a massive theological issue. But if we think that it's kind of a a committee meeting, the the heart and the mind and the will kind of having a little chit-chat and, you know, whoever's strongest wins, we're confused because the Bible does not support that option. Whether we recognize it or not, we are all driven by what we want, by what we love, by what we value, and that's not something we can control. It's just a response. We're responders. Let's go back to chapter 1 and see what Paul says. When he's saying, basically, this is what I pray for you. I pray that you would come to know God better. And then he says, I I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. He wants them to know specifically three things. And there's three elements here. He says, first of all, I want you to know, come to know, the hope to which he has called you. I want you to know that. I want you to really know that. As in, in your heart, know that. He wants the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they would know the hope of their calling. What is their calling? Well, if you go back earlier in the chapter, it's highly relational called to be holy and blameless, which I think is bride of Christ language, called to be his sons in adoption. We're called to a relationship, and he says, I want you to know the hope of your calling. As you anticipate the fullness of that, I want you to know from the heart that it's certain. Because that's what biblical hope is. We use the word hope in lots of ways, don't we? I hope that uh, Chippenham Town win the FA Cup. I don't, actually, but you might. (laughs) That's a pretty vague wish, right? I mean, chances are minimal. And yet people could use the word hope for that. I hope that having taken my car to the garage, it won't cost too much money. I'm not going to tell you what brand of car I have, but that's a vague wish. They like to charge, and I shouldn't 
get this online or I could get sued. But, you know, uh, that sort of hope is just vague. I remember hearing Stuart Briscoe, I think it was, some years ago, talking about uh, the, how students use the word hope. We're going to have a student-y theme tonight, right? And so uh, he said, There's, you see a student walking through the corridors, and it's sort of exam time. And, and, and you say to the student, how, are you, you know, how did it go, or how do you hope it's going to go? How did it go? Oh, I hope I did okay. Now, let's say that the student happens to be carrying 15 books, you know, and, and wearing glasses. That always helps. And, and the person looks just mighty studious. And on top of the pile of books is their library card balanced with their chin, you know, and, and they're heading back to the library to get some more. How did your exam go? I hope it went well. That's probably a fairly confident hope, right? I know some people like that. I won't name them. It'd be embarrassing. But, you know, they're just that confidence. But, but then there's this other kid that kind of wanders down the corridor, kicking a football and drinking a can of Coke. And he obviously hasn't been studying and obviously just, you know, doing whatever. And, hey, how do you think the exam's gone? Well, I hope I do all right. <laughs> that could be a vague wish, couldn't it? Unless he's one of those genius types. It could be a total wish. Biblically speaking, hope is not vague wish. I'd kind of like it to be true. It's an absolute certainty. I want you to know what is the hope of your calling, as in you can bank your eternity on this hope. It's that certain. Paul wants them to know that from the heart, that what God has begun, he will finish. That what God has invited into them into, they will realize the reality of being in relationship with God. Wow. More than that, he says, as well as the hope to which you've been called, he says, secondly, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Where are we? Verse 18 still, right? So that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, if, if the hope of his calling is sort of looking back to, to the fact that he called you and, and in anticipation and that's certain, this is looking forward to the point where the inheritance is realized, is, is received. And it's a glorious inheritance. Paul's anticipating and he's looking forward. He's like, oh, it's going to be good. Now, whose inheritance is it? Look at the passage. We, we always think, don't we, that we're the ones that get the inheritance. It were, the language was used that way just a few verses earlier. But actually here what he says is the riches of his glorious inheritance in us. I think what he means here is what he says here. That we are God's inheritance and he thinks we are glorious. Come on, that's ridiculous. Look at us. I mean, well, okay, not look at you, look at me. I mean, it's impossible. How could God look at us and think... That, I'm thrilled that they're mine. We talked this morning about a groom standing at the front of the church as the bride comes through the door and how his heart just skips a beat and then goes a million beats per second. Just the, the, the response of delight in the bride. Do you realize that that's God's anticipation for when the bride of Christ comes home? He views us as a glorious inheritance. Ooh. Now, if you have self-esteem issues, I'm not trying to get into self-esteem, not a huge fan of the concept actually but if you want to go somewhere go here and chew on this for a while this just this one phrase the glorious inheritance the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints wow he thinks a lot more of us than we think of ourselves 
But there's something else, as well as the calling that he's uh, called us to and the hope of that, and as well as the glorious inheritance, which is future, there's also a present thing that he's praying for. As he prays for them to know him better, he wants them to know from the heart, look at verse 19, his incomparably great power for us who believe. Literally, his, his power that is toward us, it's in our direction. If, if, if Paul's praying that, that they would know God, I wonder if their response might be a bit like ours. I, I want you to know God. Well, I want that too. You know, ideally, that would be great. But you know, the circumstances of my life, the challenges that I'm facing, I mean, my work is tough. I, mean, I have to work you know, 15 hours a day. And, well, you've got to understand that you know, family life is difficult for me or you know, I struggle with my singleness. Whatever it is, you know, we've got these circumstances and we've got these challenges. And you know, I just really struggle to be able to read and I struggle with this and I struggle with that. And we can come up with our list of difficulties and struggles that basically sort of puts a buffer between us and the prayer that we would know God better. And I think Paul's anticipating that. And he's saying, I really want you to get this. The incomparably great power that is toward us who believe. As we, as we trust in him to let us know him more, he will bring us into a greater and a deeper experience of the relationship with God. That we can know him better next week than we did last week. That we can know him more next year than we did last year. God is able to do that. Because his power is so incomparably great. And I wonder if in Paul's mind he's thinking, I reckon they'll still be looking blankly at that point. Let me reinforce my point. How much power is there? Look at what he does. He goes on to describe the working of God's strength. He says, that power, that power that is toward us to bring us deeper into relationship with God, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted when... Well, in Christ, when he raised him from the dead. Ooh, that's powerful. (laughs) So we're talking resurrection power. Yep, yep, resurrection power. The same power that took a completely dead, crucified, apparently so-called criminal uh, and raised him fully back to life physically so that he walked out of the tomb and never died again. That's powerful. In fact, he goes on beyond that. He says more than that. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So as well as raising him from the dead, he also ascended him or exalted him and seated him in the heavenly realms, uh, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. won't go into that, but I think what he's referring to there is all the hierarchies of angelic forces. He's above that. More than that, there's another stage to this power. And God placed all things under his feet. And, fourth stage, he appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, is that enough power to get us through Monday and to bring us into a deeper relationship with God? I would have to say probably is. If if the power that raised Jesus from the dead and, and exalted him and seated him at the right hand and put everything under his feet and made him head over the church, if that's the power that's working toward us, that is for us to be able to know him more, I say we trust it. Because I don't think our problems are as big as that power. I don't think I'm even being optimistic. I'm just doing simple kind of sum here and add up all the problems that we can come up with. And some of them are huge from our perspective. 
but compared to what God did in Christ, wow. You pray and say, God, I'm praying for my friends at Ladyfield, for, for my people that I care about. I want them to know you more. And, and I want to include me in that because I want to know you more too. You can trust him to draw you deeper into a delighted relationship with him, which is what life is all about. And so there's Paul's prayer, but actually these themes, these ideas of knowing God and the love of God and and the, the fullness of God and the richness of relationship, these go right through the letter. In chapter 2, uh, we're not going to be able to get to it because next week and the week after, we're just going to be in the first half of chapter 2. But let's sneak a little peek beyond that. In the second half of chapter 2, Paul says, you know what? There's Jews and there's Gentiles and they're completely separate, but God in Christ has taken down the division and he's made it possible for them to become one and he's building a new temple. That's the imagery he's using. The temple is a big deal in the Old Testament. It was the centerpiece of the city. It was the place where God's presence dwelt in the midst of his people because that's the nature of God. He's a relator and he wants to be in the midst of his people that he loves. If you read Zechariah 6 sometime, you'll see that it talks about a, a priest king, the Messiah who's coming and he will build a new temple. And I think Paul is reading that and he's just spilling that out as he describes this thing called the church, describing it in terms of, of a temple, a building that is filled with the fullness of God's loving presence. In fact, just let's look at a, a couple of verses just to get a taste of that. Verse 13 of chapter 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Verse 18, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Come down to the end, 21, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. You see this? This relational reality isn't just something that Paul trips off the tongue at the start and then gets down to the hard work. It's something that permeates the entire letter. He prays again in 3 verse 14. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family or every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray, notice what he's going to pray here. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Same themes, but now it's within, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I think he's still describing that temple image and saying as high and as wide and as long and as deep as the foundation, the whole thing is going to be filled with the love of God, the presence of God by his spirit. You see, for Paul, this is basic Christianity. It's a Christianity of, of, of union between the people and their God, where God dwells in us and we abide in him. And he carries on. Let's just finish the chapter because it's good stuff. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Can God do it? Oh, yes, he can. Absolutely. Ask, he'll do better than that. That's what Paul means. And, and then he carries on. He says, okay, now I want you to walk in a manner worthy 
of the calling that you've received. And he gets into an awful lot of instructions here. And it's all critically important. I'd urge you to read Ephesians. But as he's going through this, he doesn't give up on these themes that have already permeated the first half of the letter. We've looked at 4, 17 uh, to 24. But you drop down to the, the end of 4, actually into 5. He's, he's given some specific examples. And then he sums it all up. And he says this. He says, be imitators of God. Oh, that's some pressure there, isn't there? Just be imitators of God. No, no, that's not what he says. What he says is, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. You're dearly loved, and so in response, copy him. Right? And live a life of love. There it is again. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That temple idea is still coming through here. And Paul's saying, you know what? You want to know how to act and how to behave? Love. As you've been loved. He carries on through the chapter dealing with some issues that they would face in their culture. Comes down uh, to 518, for example. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. There's that filling language coming through again. Goes on to talk about wives and husbands. In fact, he quotes the verse we saw this morning in Genesis. Right at the end of Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one. They will be united. And verse 32, he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Why? Because that's the image all the way through of a God who loves and gives in order for his people to become his bride, in order for his people to become the dwelling place where he can inhabit them. In fact, you carry on into six and he deals with children and parents and slaves and masters and all the spiritual warfare context. They're facing some real struggles there. But notice how he finishes the letter. It's like he can't let these themes go down at the end. Verse 23 says, Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. See, it's about love from beginning to end. He's saturated the whole thing with this theme of a loving God who has lavished his grace on us so that we can be brought into relationship with him and we can know him more and more and more and it can go deeper and it can be more real because his love comes to inhabit us and dwell in us as we become the temple of the living God. And Paul's just flowing his way through this letter and this is basic, basic Christianity. He wants them to know God better. What is it to be a human? It's to be made in the image of a God who's a relator. Which is why to be human, at some level, the hardest person is craving some sort of relationship. That's what the design. God hasn't left us to grope around in the dark trying to find and manufacture some sort of false relationship He's made the first move and he's pursued us and he's chosen us and he sent his son to die for us and he sent his spirit to fill us and he wants us to know him. Not just know him, but know him. Relationally know him better and better and better. Simple stuff, but isn't it rich? What a God we have and what a privilege to know him.